This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Seal and I'm joined today by Spectator's political editor, Katie Balls, and a special guest in the editor of Conservative Home, Paul Goodman. Uh, the topic we're discussing today is the union and, first of all, Nicola Sturgeon's resignation. Katie, first, do you think perhaps that this uh, n- news today is a vindication of what Rishi Sunak did uh, last month with the Section 35 order and more broadly perhaps Downing Street's ongoing union strategy towards Scotland? So I think there was already a vindication on the Section 35 order in the sense the polling, particularly polling that came out yesterday, has suggested a majority of Scots back Rishi Sunak for blocking that bill. And obviously it's the first time ever a Section 35 order had been used. And at the time, there were lots of headlines saying Tories are waging you know, dangerous culture war and some suggesting, oh, we're not happy with this. And I think as time has gone on, actually, the argument, which is quite carefully made in Downing Street, I think as Paul wrote, you know, if, if you're hearing more from Alistair Jack, it's an argument about the constitution and legislation, as opposed to you hear from Kemi Badenoch, it's more, that's a person standing out, it's more perhaps identity politics is, is that angle they're going on, which obviously corresponds to the briefs. But I think the way they pitched it, and also the reaction, also then what happened with the rapist prisoner and a female prison in Scotland has meant that lots of people just think it is bad legislation it's also rushed legislation and therefore you have quite a rare situation I would say whereby a Tory prime minister is being warmly received by many Scottish voters for intervening and so I think even before you get to Nicola Sturgeon's decision today which I don't think we can but down to any one factor there's so many things going on behind the scenes here it clearly has not been helpful to her how unpopular this policy has become and perhaps it was the last rule perhaps it's matters uh, involving uh, you know, legal affairs, this loan of her husband. There's, there's so many things moving around here and also just the difficulties of independence but clearly it was a gamble that has backfired. Paul, you talked to a lot of Tory MPs. What do you think the reaction will be to Nicola Sturgeon's going today? Well, I think they um, will uh, immediately feel that in some sense this is a vindication of uh, Rishi Sunak's decision, as Katie said. So quite an important question is to test whether or not that really holds water. And I think, first of all, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. It could be that Nicola Sturgeon, now she's cleared off, takes her policy with her, the SNP regroup, that in fact in 18 months or whenever the election comes, the SNP are perfectly fine. However, you can also take the view that over quite a long period, the SNP have become more and more and more stymied by London's refusal to grant a referendum, that you've had Alba, you've had these cracks in its united front, and that basically what this issue has done is somehow burst the SNP's balloon. Now, if that's the case... Who gains? And there's an obvious argument that the gainer is, in fact, Labour. Because uh, if the SNP goes down, even if Labour's vote is stationary and doesn't go up, they gain some seats. And I, I think there's a, a sense in which that may be true. However, it would also be the case that if the Tories can just hold their vote level in Scotland and the SNP vote goes down, they would win some seats too, at a time they might not necessarily be winning them elsewhere. And I think there's a much bigger psychological question about this, which is where, if Conservative MPs think it's a win for Rishi Sunak, I think they're basically onto something because 
The Section 35 decision is clearly part of the mix. And Rishi Sunak so far has been the ultimate unlucky general. Boris Johnson was the ultimate lucky general while he lasted. You know, he was able to come in, face uh, opposition led by Jeremy Corbyn, who was unelectable. It was you know, typical of Boris Johnson's good luck while it lasted. Sunak has been dealt this terrible hand of twos and threes to play. But now, suddenly, a decision he's taken seems to have paid off. And once you get a reputation for being lucky, people start thinking you're being lucky and you get lucky. So this might just, might be something of a turning point for him. Talk about decisions being taken. There's reports uh, in the papers this week that there's going to be some kind of deal around the protocol. Can you talk us where we're at on the protocol right now? And um, why is this issue sort of being... There hasn't been much sort of conversation on them. There have been leaks, unlike sort of the Theresa May years. Where, do you know what we're sort of currently at? Can we expect some sort of deal in the coming weeks or so? I think there's a very decent chance there is some deal in the protocol within the next week or so. There's also... A chance, as anyone who has covered uh, Brexit and these negotiations, <laughs> that the whole thing blows up and then nothing ever comes to pass. And I think Downing Street, uh, as you say, being very closely guarded. But and you know, for example, Rishi Sunak has been accused of just sitting on an agreement now for you know a week or so. As I understand it, there is no final agreement yet, and actually, it's still the case that the Prime Minister could say he doesn't agree to the, to, to what, they, what has been discussed. Why is Rishi Sunak doing this? I think as Paul has written about on Con Home, this is probably one of the most dangerous issues Rishi Sunak has chosen to get involved in. You have a situation where since Rishi Sunak came in, he has wanted to um, be very careful not to upset the parliamentary party. So whenever you've had rebellions on planning the online harms bill, there's always been an effort to find a compromise or a way through rather than face down rebels. Now, often this is a smart thing to do. Sometimes it'd be written as, you know, massive U-turn is probably somewhere between the two and most of these issues, but it does just show you that he has been quite risk averse. So therefore to decide to go forward and try and fix the Northern Ireland Protocol as they were pitching is just very risky because anything you come back with, particularly on the ECJ, if it still has an active role in terms of um, decisions and arbitration, may well not pass the DEP test. And as you know, one former cabinet minister said to me, if you don't have the DEP on side, you might as well go home. Because if you don't have the DEP on side, the European Research Group won't be on side. And before you know it, you end up in a situation where you really rather the right of the party. Now, you could really annoy and upset the right of the party and still agree a new deal. For one, I think has been now been reported, but as we have said on this podcast for weeks, there is nothing to force a vote on this. There, there's no mechanism which means you have to vote on the agreement. But also, if MPs want to have a vote, they find a way to have a vote. So uh, I think just because there's not a, a natural mechanism for it doesn't mean there won't be a vote in the House. I would imagine Rishi Sunak can get this through. Not only has Keir Starmer said he will offer Labour votes, but also I think there are probably more MPs, which <laughs> Paul makes the correct noise, which is no Tory Prime Minister wants to do that. Um, but also I do think a, probably a majority of Tory MPs would back this. Perhaps um, it's just that in the process... Are you going to alienate, upset, and really rile a group that makes then makes it much harder to govern? And in a vote, which could happen, you would expose that. And that's the gamble. I think the reason Rishi Sunak is doing it is because you have a situation whereby the view in Downing Street is 
yes, lots of people, including some senior candidates, say, leave this alone. It's too dangerous to go near. But I think it hangs over everything. And given uh, the Tories have said, get Brexit done in 2019, I think it's a very visible sign you haven't got Brexit done. There was some interesting polling by Matthew Goodwin and people polling a few weeks ago, which found that on managing Brexit, I think the Tories are on 16% as the best party and Labour on 17%. But the really, really large percentages don't know. And therefore, I think it gives you some insight into why something... Anything you can do to show Brexit is running more smoothly is a ripe terrain where you can own back that agenda rather than letting, you know, another party fix some of the issues you should be owning. You can have that rationale. (laughs) It still does mean it could blow up. Paul, you're obviously something of an expert in Conservative Party anthropology. I just wondered, is this just about, you know, the DUP and the EIG? What are the kind of key factions here within the party that Rishi Sunak needs to keep happy? It's very hard to add much to what Katie said, but... A way of thinking about it all is as follows. I suppose there's an imaginary world for a moment in which Rishi Sunak, having avoided a confrontation on transconversion therapy, having avoided a confrontation on housing and planning, having avoided a confrontation on onshore wind, um, says, I have my five priorities. I'm sticking to that. I'm not going to cause any rows. Europe and Brexit and the protocol... Therefore, after the election, in the short term, I'm going to announce a few technical changes with the EU, if I can agree them, and everything proceeds on that orderly basis. So the question you've got to ask is kind of why take a risk that's this big? It is a risk, because if, uh, as Katie said, the deal, if there is a deal, addresses the European cause of justice element, and it doesn't satisfy anyone, first of all, By definition, it doesn't satisfy the DUP, and I think it's going to be very, very hard to get the DUP back into government in Northern Ireland, because if you're Geoffrey Donaldson, you're looking over your shoulder at your colleagues, if you're your colleagues looking over your shoulder at your party, if you're then looking over your shoulder at traditional unionist voice, that's hard enough anyway. But a row about the court drags in not just the ERG, but potentially Boris Johnson, gasp of horror, and Liz Truss, who was in charge of the protocol when she was foreign secretary. This is a very dangerous combination. Now, you might say, uh, well, um, uh, there won't be a vote. But as Katie said, if the powers that be want to find a way, or the non-powers that be want to find a way of getting a vote, they'll get a vote. So this is very dangerous, says Sunak. The, the, The upside is... It's a brilliant political triumph. You sort the issue of the court. There isn't any opposition. There isn't a vote. And he, you know, he has a reputation for managing Brexit more successfully and he can go on to reach a settlement about horizon and so on. But the downside is so big a risk, I'm still puzzled about why they're contemplating a big bang deal at all. And you said about this week, obviously, the Spectator cover is on uh, Scotland. Uh, last week, it was uh, the haunting with uh, Rishi Sunak surrounded by uh, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, the woman you just mentioned a second ago, Paul. Just wonder what kind of um, threat you think that Rishi Sunak will face uh, in the next coming months from these two former prime ministers on the backbenches. Obviously, there's the issue of the protocol you just mentioned, but also there's the local election as well. Do you see any kind of key flashpoints coming up in the coming months? Well, the obvious flashpoints are, one, the budget. What happens if the budget doesn't offer Tory MP some element of hope. The other possibility, which I would think ought to haunt Downing Street and the whips, is you have a pile-up of the protocol going wrong and the small boats policy going wrong. It's very, very important for them they get the small boats policy right. It's legally extremely difficult. But if they have a, a, a situation with the small boats where either 
Suella Bravman in the Home Office and her team are not happy, and we know there's been a lot of negotiation between the Home Office and Downing Street about this this proposal. We know there are different views in Downing Street itself. If you have that, or at the other end, the the, uh, small boats proposal uh, has something in it about the European Convention on Human Rights or the court that's unacceptable to, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, Damien Green, Bob Neill, Andrew Mitchell, that end of the party. Um, If ministers take it upon themselves to resign, this could get very, very difficult before the local elections. This is not the spring ball that Rishi Sunak would want. So although on the surface you'd have to say Tory MPs must feel exhausted by what happened last year, they must be relieved, however grim the polls are, by not having stuff in their inbox every day about parties um, or about the mini-budget. You know, in, in a party that's so balkanised after what happened last year, you really can't be sure what will happen. I, I mean, I completely agree with that. I wrote in The Times a few weeks ago how... Between the protocol and the small boat, you have two issues where Rishi Sunak is now taking on parts of his party. There is a chance the small boats, if you get it right, is almost <laughs> the, the carrot by which you bring some of the right of the party back on side while doing the protocol. But it would guarantee on having Sue Ella Braverman, as Paul says, on side, um, fixing you know this back and forth that sounds as though it's going on with the number 10 in the Home Office. But you you could, if you got it right, I think, be giving something to the right of the party, while also then saying, yes, on the protocol, making some compromises, but look what we're here, and this is what... Your constituents will speak much more about small boats than they will the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Red Wall. So look at this and just suck this bit up. And I don't think they'd say it quite as I do, because um, that isn't my job, <laughs> and that they'd pitch it in a, in a more sophisticated manner. Um, but I think there was one way there. But if you misjudge these things then you do have two issues where it really blows things up. And I think particularly had the budget, that's ahead of the local elections. And when it comes to the local elections, which was what would have been in the magazine had Nicola Sturgeon not resigned this morning, <laughs> so I have the column ready to go. Um, <laughs> you know, it's how do you interpret results? Because the local elections is ultimately... Uh, what is up for grabs there is from Theresa May's lowest ebb uh, when she was Prime Minister in terms of those results, 2019. I think there is something that you can maybe spin there. Uh, if you have, that I haven't spoken to any Tory MP who thinks it's going to be anything short of dreadful. So therefore, you just need a few, you know, surprising rays of light that you can point to. But how willing MPs are to see the upside versus to say, well, this is all because of all these things that you made me do that I don't like, depends so much on the events in the build-up. And I think that's why these things are so important. Yeah, and uh, Paul. Funny, how much do you think Rishi Sunak can be blamed or is being blamed rather by? Tory MPs for everything that's happening right now. I mean, a lot of these problems are not really of his making. For instance, you know, for instance, they're going around about Richard Sharp's position at the BBC, as small as that might be. You know, a small boat crisis happened in the years before this. What kind of responsibility is he being held with within the party? Well, um, you know, I go back to saying that a, a starting point is that however grim the polls are, you know, these Tory MPs are not being subsumed in emails about Barnard Castle uh, or about parties or about the mini-budget, so they would at least be grateful for that. But the longer this poll position comes with Labour's lead being frozen, the more nervous they will get. And one of the characteristics of the position is that um, Rishi Sunak, as it were, is turning around his party and saying, this is all part of the, the Isaac Levito doctrine, don't expect the polls to move freer. Don't expect them to change very much yet. We're going through a very hard time. No one wants to listen to us. We need to deliver on our five priorities and then 
we will be given a hearing. So the question that arises from that, if things get difficult in the meantime, is how patient are Conservative MPs prepared to be? Where is the main point of weakness from... In, in, in terms of where a sort of forest fire is likely to spring up, is it from Boris Johnson's supporters? Are we certain that Boris Johnson really wants to come back under these circumstances? There's quite a lot of suggestive evidence that actually he doesn't. And um, uh, he's quite happy to see his supporters make this noise, but he's no more really willing to do it now than he was a few months ago. And there's that issue. Then there's the next issue, I suppose, is the Liz Truss supporters. And were I... Um, Downing Street or the Treasury, I would be wanting to pick up as was clearly the most sort of persuasive and uncontaminated of them, namely Simon Clark, um, who wasn't in on the mini budget, can't be blamed for it, is busy campaigning in a very lively way. They were I Jeremy Hunt the Whips, I would be calling Simon Clark every morning, tell us what you want in the budget. What do you say? Very interesting, Simon. Must write all that down. And I would have him back in at the next reshuffle like a shot. So that would be your way of dealing with that. But I suppose, it, it, you know, in conclusion, the most dangerous thing for Rishi Sunak it always is what you've not expected. It's the pile-up of unexpected events that tip things in, in a party that, as last year, proved is very febrile. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots.